This is the Almost Awakened Podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. All right. Um, how are you? <laughs> I'm good. So sorry if you, if you usually join us live at one o'clock. We had some technical issues, but we're here. Yeah. We did some solo episodes and we're finally here back together and it's good to see you, my friend. Yeah, I'm glad to be back. Wife and I went on a little cruise, had a ton of fun. I feel like I've told you the story already. <laughs> <laughs> for those, yeah, for those who don't know, we we went live, but we had a technical hiccup. And so here we are actually live with each of you. But the cruise was great. Um, had a ton of fun. Uh, I, I'm kind of trying to get caught back up, but there's been a lot going on, but um, life is good. Yeah, and you? tell me about, I'm doing great. Um, I'm still kind of playing around in the TikTok world, kind of checking out the vibe in that man. That's part of the world. Way. Yeah, And uh, really, I'm just talking about all the things that we talk about on this podcast. So yeah. if you have listened to all of our podcasts, it's it's like that, but it's a whole different audience. And it's very interesting to like, I'll, I'll do something really positive or some beautiful thing about healthy spirituality. And like, you know, it's kind of, it'll get a few likes or it'll get a couple hundred people. And then I'll post something, you know, if, if someone's coming in attacking me and telling me that I'm going into hell or quoting a scripture at me or something really incendiary and I'll respond to it. Then I get atheists and Christians talking in the comment section and that one will get 20,000 views mm. or whatever. And so I do, I, it's interesting and it's it's um, interesting to kind of have these conversations and stitch each other's videos. But I also think there's a part of it that's like a moral outrage machine. And I don't necessarily like if I wanted to, I could just post content to make religious people and atheists just argue with each other and hate each other. And that would get a lot more views, <laughs> but it's just not my vibe. So it's it's trying to how to you know I'm trying to navigate that space. So that's where I've been playing a little bit lately. But you officiated a wedding, which I think is really cool. So tell me about that. Yeah. So uh, the first one I had done weddings back in Ohio as a Mormon bishop, but those are kind of um, what was the words I wanted to use? They're kind of a low level wedding. You know, you you're in the cultural hall. There, people aren't going to the temple to do it the way the church really pressures you to do it. So these yeah, are civil marriages. Is They're, the vibe like, like, oh, you didn't make it there. Like, is there a little bit of sadness in it? Almost? That's the vibe anytime you don't do the Mormon thing, right? Like, yeah, it's uh, like, we'll, we'll half celebrate, but we're not going to make it a big thing. Cause like, it's yeah. like, you didn't finish the marathon. So like, good job trying, but like, yeah. you didn't finish the marathon. So here's your participation trophy. Yeah, it's yeah. A, it's totally a participation <laughs> trophy. I've been to some of these too. <laughs> and you know how it is. You decorate the basketball hoops on each end of the cultural hall. Mm. I'm I'm the lay bishop. I'm I'm just the local carpet salesman thrown in. So nobody's expecting much. They're, they're really just, uh, they're just not high level stuff, but um, but I thought I did a good job on them. Six or seven of those back in Ohio did one in North Dakota last year for my sister-in-law. 
that I thought was beautiful and, and went off really well. I thought she organized and put on a great wedding. And uh, I don't, I think I didn't take away from that. So uh, this one was in Zion's national park at a monument there called the temple of Senawava. It's just a rock that sits up and the backdrop is, you know, Zion's national park, which is all this beautiful red rock. that's just gorgeous. And in fact, I'll put it up here on the screen. Yeah. Let me, um, whoop, let me put it there. Let me change that. And so, uh, you know, Utah or sorry, Southern Utah weddings.org. Um, I think the website looks nice. I've got, I, I specialize essentially in non-religious ceremonies, LGBTQ ally, post-Mormon spiritual mysticism with a magic mushroom there picture of me, uh, kind of a description of myself description of kind of the four areas I focus weddings on, uh, some pictures of, you know, my, my sister-in-law's wedding, you can message, you can call. I've got a little promo down there for the almost mm. awakened podcast like Love that. It. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, for folks in Southern Utah, where there's a high Mormon population, I'm excited to do weddings for people. I th- don't think I charge a ton at the moment. I- I'll probably end up charging what everybody else does. But to get my name out there, I've I've only been charging like two to 300 bucks mm-hmm. uh, for something local. I charge 400 bucks to go to Provo for one here in a month from now. Mm-hmm. But there's four or five on the calendar. Got my first one under my belt. And um, I'm super excited. How about you? you? You've done a few of these too, right? I've done a couple. The last one I did, it was one of those that they were Mormon-ish and didn't make it to the temple kind of weddings. And one side of the family was like super orthodox and one side of the family was kind of either out or nuanced. And so I had to really like with them kind of craft a language that used familiar terms, but in a direction that both sides were kind of happy about or both, you know, right groom we're happy about and i enjoyed that challenge because i like we talk about it all the time on the podcast just because we leave religion or we deconstruct religion or you know it doesn't mean that we should we shouldn't celebrate these these occasions and so developing language to fit people is a, a really fun challenge for me yeah and i know we don't get a ton of live viewers i think when we publish stuff, not live, you know, after, I shouldn't say it that way. We do a live show, then it goes up and it's published and people can watch it after the fact. And we'll get, you know, through 3,500 to maybe 6,000 views or listens uh, in total. Um, but right now, but normally we'll have 20 to 30 people in here watching live and there's zero, mm-hmm. which tells me that our technical difficulty yeah. has prevented anybody from finding us right now. Yeah, and, that's uh, okay. But, Life is impermanent. You know, we're just going to keep, we're just going to keep going along because we're loving the journey, even if no one's listening. (laughs) Who cares? Yeah. We we love the journey. And I've learned, so you were talking before uh, we went live this time about how we've done like a hundred. Well, the podcast is about 140 episodes old. I've probably been on for, I don't know, a hundred or close to a hundred. Yeah. Um, Cause we didn't start this together. You started this and then I, joined because I loved the premise of it. But um, I've just, when I think back about how much I've learned just in the conversations that we've had and the prep that we've done just in that, you know, year, year and a half of podcasting together. um, It's a lot. Like I've learned so much. So I'm here for the journey, man. And it's, and there's been great folks to have those conversations with, right? Nick, Nick Jankel, Mm-hmm. Uh, Jana and Anthony, of course, for I think are my favorite conversations where we're just kind of riffing on on faith and doubt. Um, 
you've got Andrew Newman, who's a famous children's author that you got on. Uh, David Lawrence, we talked about Free Will. Yeah, in two um, weeks, we're having Lisa Miller with The Awakened famous Brain. Author. I cannot wait to pick yeah. her brain. She she has like all of the studies on the science of spirituality, and I cannot wait to talk to her. So yeah, I enjoy these conversations, and I'm really you know enjoying enjoying it even though we missed some of our live audience today and you know maybe they'll find us in the next few minutes we'll see what happens (laughs) okay all right so this episode we're gonna do we're gonna go back to something that brian mclaren uh one of the books that he wrote and it's you know reasons to stay and he wrote in this book 10 reasons good reasons to leave And in this case, he's talking about Christianity, but I think we can just kind of expand this to institutions or religion in general, and then 10 reasons to stay. And so I thought we'd just kind of like riff on what he thought these reasons were, because I think a lot of our audience are either kind of on the inside or outside of that edge, right? They're either kind of in a really deconstructed space trying to make it work, or they're trying to kind of hold on to those tools, but from the outside. And so you and I probably get a lot of questions in our inbox, like, or I'm sure people have asked you, like, should I leave or should I stay? Or people are in this place, right? And you and I were, you know, kind of straddling that fence for years sometimes mm-hmm. you know when we look back so i thought it would be really fun to just go over 10 reasons to stay and 10 reasons to leave and just you know riff on is this a good or a bad argument or does this resonate with you or not so hmm. all right so we're going to do reasons to leave first so the number one reason he has or the first one i don't think this is by priority the first one that he has is that Christianity has been vicious to its mother. And what he means by this is Judaism. So one of the earliest sources depicting anti-Semitism might surprise a lot of Christians. It's the Gospel of John. And by the time the Gospel was written, Christianity was already becoming increasingly non-Jewish and Christians were less and less welcome in Jewish circles. Um, And so John writes, you know, the Jews when referencing those who wanted to kill Jesus when he should have, you know, probably just singled out Jewish leadership. Um, And then this actually, you know, there's other voices, Tertullian, Origen, Jerome, Ambrose, Augustine, who are the major founding Christian fathers who vilified the Jews, which sets the stage for the inhuman acts of persecution against the Jewish people in the coming centuries. And one of my, you know, one of the people I listen to a lot is Christopher Hitchens. And anytime he goes up in a debate against a Catholic uh, priest, he always says the Catholic Church has never apologized for the Holocaust, that they planted this seed, that there was anti-Semitism throughout Christianity. And that when the cat, when um, Hitler was rising to power, Hitler made a deal with the Catholic Church and Hitler said, if you don't, you know, don't get involved in the elections and the Catholic Church Church said, sure, do whatever you want. Just make just make it so that we are educating the children. We want the curriculum to educate the children. And the Catholic Church has never kind of responded to that or apologized to that. So what do you think on that one? That anti-Semitism leave because the root a lot of Christianity is responsible for anti-Semitism in the world and the Holocaust. So, yeah. So my first thought is if you asked a thousand people who have left their church, what their reason is for having left, I bet nobody would say that answer. Cause yeah. I think why you leave your religion, that might be something you come up with later, 
but the reason you leave your religion is going to be much more personal to you, right? Mm. And and so I'm thinking about I'm thinking about this in terms of the story that Christianity tells. So Christianity and the religion we came from, Mormonism, um, Christianity tells a story to its congregants in all of its various forms. Generally, again, I know there's exceptions. There are progressive Christian churches who are beginning to tell a better narrative, but most faiths tell the story that you know Jesus sets apart his uh, disciples. They are the first Christians. Jesus is putting Christianity into action, and uh, he dies. He's crucified. He's resurrected. Uh, he kind of sets his church in order, and then he ascends into heaven. Meanwhile, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all the guys are all together, right, running the the Jesus's church, and Christianity is, you know, getting off on the right foot in the first generation. And as you and I both know, the scholarship tears that entire story apart. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John aren't really the disciples that we're talking about. They're not even, some of them aren't even specifically named in as the disciples. The gospels are written way late. Jesus is a rebellious Jew who is trying to fix the system from within. And anybody following Jesus in real time or the first and second generation after Jesus's death are almost certainly participating within the uh, Jewish religion and are not Christians. And it's not going to be until whatever, 50, 60, 70, 80, maybe as late as 100 uh, AD, that we begin to see the Christian church actually being organized and those followers of Jesus alienating, alienating, uh, sorry, alienating themselves so much that they're now removed from the Jewish faith and creating the Christian church. And, and what this means, again, for a reason to leave, I just don't think most people who are being alienated by their religion are this far into that storyline. Yeah, and I the, totally agree. It's almost like, you know, if you were to take a poll of why Christians leave, which we've gone over, we've gone over the reasons mm -hmm. why people leave, you know, problem of, problem of evil and social issues and political reactions and all of this. Um, nowhere on that list is, you know what, I'm ashamed specifically of anti-Semitism, and that's the only reason that I'm leaving. Like, I've really never heard that. But it seems like Brian McLaren is just trying to, um, he's looking at kind of the history and saying, what is the Christian church responsible for that is wrong, that is evil? And if all of those, if all of that anti-Semitism really can be traced back to this started with Christianity, I think he's just trying to own that. But I don't know if that's a people a reason why people leave. <laughs> Maybe it should be, but it's usually not. And my worry is, again, I think on a social, political, human trauma level, he's hitting on something I think that's really important. And I also fear that when your reasons don't line up with Brian McLaren's, maybe in some way he's diminishing your your ability to justify and feel value about the reasons you left. And and again, this, I don't think this is yeah. the reason almost anyone leaves. Right. And so here's a quote that he says, I was taught about the heroic Christian martyrs who faced torture and death with courage and equanimity, but I was never taught about how often Christians had made martyrs of others, torturing and killing people of other faiths and their fellow Christians in the name of God, Jesus, the church, the Bible and Christianity. So mm. yeah, like you said, I see Brian McLaren here just, um, trying to 
take like almost take stock like what are we responsible for what do we need to own up mm -hmm. to as christians rather than the actual lived experience kind of arguments which is yeah. interesting but we'll keep mm -hmm. playing with it all right the next one is because of christianity's suppression of dissent so institutions always punish dissent either with even death or barbaric forms of social punishment like excommunication but other institutions like politics can have a proud history of dissent scientists can dissent and get social credibility for doing so especially if it's on something that you did right if you are dissenting against your own theory you get kind of street cred for being unbiased but religion by nature will never tolerate dissent that's a better argument to me mm. what do you think on that one um, I, I love this one. So um, let me see how I want to frame this. Religion has always gotten it wrong. And, and here's what I mean. In the way that followers of the Judeo-Christian God, at any given moment, the rules they decide to adhere by that they go oh god gave us these rules these ones are still intact we're going to follow these let's go for it at the same time there are other rules that the old testament or new testament give that christians in their own religion go like nah like those ones i'm not going to do and then there are a whole another set of rules that aren't given in the scriptures that the churches enact that you're either following or not following depending on what year you're a member of that church. So it's easy to use our religion, but in Mormonism, things are constantly changing and uh, everything was restored, right? The Mormonism is supposed to be a restoration and yet there was never any animal sacrifices, for instance. So are animal sacrifices good or bad? And, and the Old Testament says, you know, we're not supposed to mix fabrics and people right away kind of give that up. And so even Orthodox Jews don't follow all the rules of, of their canon. Mm -hmm. And so what you end up having, it, it kind of goes with this uh, idea of there's no, there's no line of morality when you, when you become an atheist. It's kind of the same argument, which is the rules are constantly changing and no religion within the Christian Judeo movement has been able to offer a consistent set of beliefs and behaviors and patterns that hold up to logical thinking don't hold up across time and space. They're, they're changing as well. And so there's nothing ever constant. And, and so for nothing to be constant, but for you not to be able to raise your voice and go mm -hmm. like, Hey, something's wrong here mm -hmm. is such a weird thing. Like mm -hmm. I can't tell the Mormon leader in the present moment he's wrong but then, but the 10 prophets after are going to disavow something each. Mm -hmm. Like the way we decide what's allowed and what isn't, and we suppress the voice of the congregation so that criticism really isn't allowed to be raised. The Catholic priest, the Baptist minister, the Mormon president of the church, the Catholic Pope, the, the, you know, leaders of whatever Scientology, Jehovah's witness, it doesn't matter. It could be Methodism. There comes a, way in which you are told that you still need on some level to fit in some sort of box in order for you to keep participating in this faith system. Meanwhile, 25 years from now, whatever it was you were pushing against and they pushed you out 
might be accepted. And in many yeah. cases tends to be for the mm-hmm. people who are pushing a progressive religious view. Right. And so I think people absolutely are justified to leave when they don't see a mechanism by which they can raise a voice of dissent and changes can occur if the dissent makes sense. And um, um, and it go. I'm trying to think of a way to frame it. If I raise a voice of dissent and not only does it make sense, but it is the better route to go and that is judged so by the collective. Mm. Not just to have a few people at the top going, no, you can't say that. Yeah. And I like how he brings in that not all institutions are like that, because one of the common arguments you get is that the where will you go argument like, oh, if you don't like the president, are you just going to move out of America? You know, you get a lot of this argument like, oh, all institutions are faulty. But here's an instance where we have an institution like the government where the founding fathers wrote in a way for dissent to be dealt with. If you want to dissent, here is how you do it lawfully, mm-hmm. peaceably, mm-hmm. whatever. And, you know, there's no, and even when Christianity says that it has that, or even in Mormonism, like we say we have that, we say mm-hmm. that we vote, but it's not, it's not a real thing, right? It's a, it's a ritual of anything, right? And so this is an, this is a way, this is a, this is an area where religious institutions are different than other kinds of institutions that have some process for dealing with dissent and becoming better from that dissent, whereas religion just does not have that mechanism. It only self-corrects from pressure from the outside, and then it's excommunicating its members, and then it changes, and then you know, you're supposed to just think, oh, the leadership is brilliant, right? Or, you know, talking to God or whatever. And so that's not a good system of dissent. Um, It's only going to lead to really corruption and blindsiding and all these things. Yeah. In fact, um, let me put it up on the screen here and just, uh, just to note the community of Christ, which is a break off of the LDS faith, uh, break off of the, of Mormonism. It's a competing branch essentially of, of the LDS faith, but they have a mode of faithful disagreement and they make it clear that you are welcome to raise a voice to to anything. Essentially, there's a certain way they want you to do it. Like, don't be, don't be. Yeah, an that's asshole. fine. But, yeah. But you can see the community of Christ is characterized by enduring principles that allow for faithful disagreement as expressed through the blessings of the of the community. Uh, holding a different bu- viewpoint on a particular matter does not diminish in any way a person's participation as a faithful, committed, responsible member of the church. Um, person with a differing viewpoint on a particular position is to be respected by the body and allowed to voice her or his viewpoint as a personal opinion during discussions, meetings, training opportunities, right? Like there should be open dialogue. And this is how you create enthusiastic consent. This is how Mm -hmm. you prevent unsafe boundaries, unhealthy Mm -hmm. boundaries. This is how you give people a voice to say, no, well, and also like improve, right? Because right? the dissent is because there's something going on that, you know, things can get better. Like we improve through, through dissent. It'd be interesting. Wouldn't it be interesting to look at all of the religions and see which religions have some kind of rule that you should not, like in Mormonism, you should not um, dissent against your leaders or speak ill of your leaders, even when that critique is true, right? So that statement of like, even if you're right, 
even if your dissent is correct, it's really better, or this is really wrong, don't say anything uh, to critique the leadership. If you gathered those religions into a group and saw which religions were doing that, I mean, I feel like those would be the cultiest. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's a good word for them, huh? <laughs> It'd be some of the cultiest religions because, you know, other religions have built in you know, systems to deal with dissent. Anyway. Yeah. All right. Next one. Um, Chris, because leaving because of Christianity's high global death toll and life toll. So the zeal of religion means that people will die for what they think God is telling them or believing that God is on their side. The tribal violence that that entails means religious is too dangerous to touch because it heightens that tribalism and surety that you will go to heaven even if you die in this fight. So people push further than they normally would, like strapping bombs to children. Yeah, so I've said this before that goes along with what, and I think this is a great reason, by the way, as well. If, if Jesus did his second coming right now. He just showed up and he was having a conversation right here on the Almost Awakened podcast with you or me. <laughs> One of the things I would want to ask him is, was it worth you existing? Mm. Like how many people have caused harm to others in Jesus's name? How many people have been killed in the name of Jesus? How many children have been molested in the name of Jesus? How many... Uh, how many family relationships have disintegrated in the name of Jesus? Because what you're looking at is you say, okay, this son of God came, he lived a life, he lived perfectly, died for our sins, died on the cross and was resurrected three days later. But when you look at what everybody after him does in his name, the harm is irreparable. Mm. And, and so this idea that Christianity has this high global death toll, he's nailed it. And at the end of the day, whether we like it or not, it it has to be laid at the feet of Jesus. Like he knew all the good and bad that would be done in his name. And hence, I often wonder if he was real, mm. if he would choose, if he knowing all how it all unfolds, if he would actually choose to live his life and die for us, knowing yeah. that billions of people would abuse his name to do things. That is such a great yeah. existential question. Cause it's a question we've talked about for us, you know, like for, is it worth it to exist? And we've talked about these questions, but Jesus, like the, whoever the rebellious, you know, you know, the, yeah, whoever he was, the mystic that he was, you know, what, what would he have chosen if he saw everything that was done in his name? And this is, this is one of those times where I wish that we could do experiments on the universe. You know, I wish that we could rewind time. Jesus doesn't exist. Roll the tape and see what happens. Does boot like, does Buddhism spread and everybody's kind of Buddhist? Is there another person that becomes kind of the founding, you know, person of the West? Cause someone's going to fill that vacuum, yeah. right? Like so, something's going to fill the vacuum. And maybe not as healthy as Jesus. And maybe not. Yeah. Maybe doesn't, you know, have nice scriptures about how you should give your money to the poor. You know, maybe yeah. it's something worse. Maybe it's like, just like a Julius Caesar or something. So, you know, it, I wish that we could do some or of even those another experiments, mix, even another mixed bag, like Muhammad. Mm, who mm -hmm. says good things, but also says things that are easily interpreted into violent stuff, you know? Yeah. And um, like, how much could the world change if you, if you could take out 20 scriptures or 20 stories or whatever, you could actually yeah. see that the world would be different because some religions, uh, although we all have tribalism and there's similarities there, 
there are certain differences in the religion itself that you can actually see in the world. So yeah. I, I, I honestly really love that Brian McLaren will at least just say this, like, this is why I'll still listen to podcasts with him on it, even though he's on the more believing side or faithful mm -hmm. side or Christian side, because if, if I can say this and he says, yes, absolutely. And that's a really valid reason to leave like that at least makes you look sane, right? I at least want to listen to you and hear you out if you're actually saying and admitting this about Christianity. Right, totally. All right, next one. Because of Christianity's loyal company men, institutionalism. So Christianity breeds patriarchy and bureaucracy, rewards loyalty above all else. So the people at the top will always be people who are chosen for loyalty, company men versus huh. those who are actually like the radical Jesus. That sounds so familiar. I've, I feel like I've experienced that. Yeah. Is this one that is inherent in institutions in general, though? This is going to be an super in, specific to Christianity. It's going to be every system you participate in. Yeah. Um, well. Yeah. It, it, my, my thoughts here, it kind of goes along with the number two a little bit because the system is kind of a closed loop system. And this is also speaking to the idea that this is a closed loop system. If, if, the gospel of Jesus, and again, we're just talking Christianity for the most part, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is meant to make all men and women equal. And that really what someone is rewarded on is on their motivation to be their best self, to be like Christ. And what we're finding here is that essentially the system we're being told here in number four, the system doesn't work that way. It really rewards certain people and those certain people aren't really the best uh, or most capable of leading the system to progressive Christ-like love. And so I think that's a perfectly good reason to step away from the system when you're being told your salvation hinges on it and you're looking at the system and going, this, this system is broken. These, these men don't have the authority they claim. And this system really isn't set up to help me to be my best self. Then I think you should be perfectly free to step outside of it. Yeah. And you can, I think we all have to choose how much we interact with institutions in general. Cause if you don't want any institutions in your life, then you have to go live in a cave. Right. Yeah, so, right. you know, I participate in the school system and there's lots of flaws and I participate in all kinds of things just by, you know, living in a city and being in a country and all of these things. Um, but for this one, when it's talking about, you know, either your soul or at least like your spirituality you do have a choice whether to be in this institute, in that institution or not. Um, where, as in, you know, if you didn't like Donald Trump, it's a little bit harder to like leave America. Yeah. And, and to go along with what you're saying, if I participate in Kiwanis or the Rotary Club or I'm in a bowling league, like these are all systems that have hierarchies to them and I can do certain things and I can't do certain things. And if I, if I bump into people too much, then they'll find a way to have me exit that, that tribe. But there's something different about systems that imprison you either uh, spiritually, physically, emotionally. Right. And so in a religious system where they're telling me they're the path to salvation, this is the way to get there. 
or in a political system where, say, in a dictatorship, uh, where my rights are extremely limited. Again, I have to be quiet in those systems because if not, I get thrown in prison. But I think we all can see the unhealthiness when a system goes to a certain extreme and crosses a line and uh, operates in ways that are deeply unhealthy. Again, all systems are unhealthy, but there is a line you cross where all of us go like, ooh, yeah, that's really bad. Mm-hmm. And, and I think I think when religion has is telling you that there's so much at stake and it's broken, I think mm-hmm. you have a right to shine a light on that and to walk away from it. Mm-hmm. All right, next one. I don't have anything to add there. Sounds good. Uh, next one. Because of Christianity's real master, which is money, mm. the power and money corrupts. Once money <laughs> comes into play, it becomes a game of how to keep the money flowing. It becomes a game um, to how to make to make and keep the money going for the kingdom of God, rather than a focus on what Jesus would be actually doing with the money. This is one that you you know more you know this world more than I do. You've you've gone down the rabbit holes of finances much more than I have. We just recently, the religion we came from is the most evil, deceptive extreme of this, right? Like we hear once in a while of a TV evangelist accumulating private jets and big houses, and that certainly happens. But we just recently ran into where our previous faith did a deep deception behind the scenes in order to hide $38 billion that it was not using to build the kingdom of God, but was just uh, was just hoarding for some magic day in the future when it'll get to use that. I do wonder, go ahead, finish that thought. Well, just that as, as the faith we came from is experiencing a max, mass exodus, there's going to be so few people left to be able to do anything with the land it owns or yeah. the money it has that one has to begin to wonder what its long-term plan even is. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. 500 years from now, where did that Mormon money really go? Cause it's, I mean, eventually it'll go somewhere. It'll do something mm-hmm. um, where, yeah, what's going to happen with it. Um, it's interesting because I do wonder if, if that would always have been the case or whether, because Jesus, it, it's so hard because when Jesus talks about money, he's talking about, you know, rich, rich men, not being able to, you know, the eye of the camel kind of story, not mm-hmm. being able to get into heaven, but then has a rich church, like one of the richest churches, right? And so it, it's very, it's very strange. And I wonder if there's certain scriptures this, that help this, like the parable of the talents, that is the one that's always brought up when someone's like, oh, why did you grow your money? And it's like, well, Jesus said, you know, if you get five talents, you should increase it to 10. So I wonder if you take out some of those scriptures, if you'd have to wrestle with what Jesus actually said about money, mm. or if it would have always been that way, just because humans and institutions are always that way. Yeah. And, and how much should... A minister make yeah that's a you know good should he make should he make more than a teacher should he make more it's like than... i want religion i want religions to make less money but i want i want um sec you know spiritual people on the outside i don't think are making enough right because they don't have a system mm. or an institution right. supporting them and so i don't think they make enough and so i just if we could move some of that money over there to over there i think that yeah. would help the world honestly and and I don't know what the fix for it is because if you're a big mega church, 
you're going to perceive that that money is necessary to do mega church things, right? And mm-hmm. but the the trouble is you can't really know what someone's motivations are, and you're sort of wanting your ministers to be altruistic in their mindset. And you're, I just think that you know absolute power corrupts absolutely. Money yeah. is a corruptive force, and I don't think there's a way to fix it. But I think if somebody senses that their church is focused on wealth and not doing good, mm-hmm. then I think that person has. A and there's also perf- no channel for dissent, right? You right. can't say that. You can't shift. You can't say, "Hey, let's let's be transparent." And how should we be spending this? And let's talk about what Jesus said. I mean, there's a whole conversation to be had there. If you can't have the conversation, then you're kind of stuck, right? Right. You should be allowed to leave reasonably. All right. Next one. Because of the white Christian old boys network, white patriarchy, these books were written by men without the female perspective, which means relying on these documents to build a religion is always going to be problematic. You can do all the feminist work you want, but any man can say it says right here in the Bible, women should not teach, should not lead, case closed. And it's like you can always play that card because it's always there in the texts. You can never get away from the scriptures, right? So you're either yeah. discarding what the scriptures say, and you have to come up with your own moral reason for doing that, or you adhere to them, and then hence you're always creating patriarchy, and you're always creating privilege, and you're always creating uh, these lines of you know persecuting people who are gay, persecuting people of color, all because we take things written in a book thousands of years ago that was just myth to begin with and you're imposing it as absolute truth. And so the moment, because the, the fix is for you to go, look, someone steps forward to go, look, I'm going to build a church and we're just going to recognize this is all myth. We don't need to adhere to any of these scriptures. Literally we're going to have good, healthy conversations around them. And the things that say bad stuff, we're going to own it says bad stuff. And we're going to use that as a tool to make us be conscientious about the world around us. Because the scriptures can be used that way, right? Mm-hmm. The moment you do that, though, then everybody's like, mm, "Like, why do I go to church? This is all mm-hmm. make-believe. So mm-hmm. in order to have the adherence and the loyalty mm-hmm. and the strength of commitment, you have to take these things literally. And if you take these things literally, you're going to perpetuate bullshit. Yeah, and this is an argument. I think this is a really good argument. And it's one I hear being used, not specifically for patriarchy, but I hear it used by Sam Harris that... That even if Islam were to, you know, you were to pull out all the most beautiful things or the thousand years in history when it was the center of science and culture in the world and it had its golden age, we still shouldn't go back to religion, even though it has these kind of beautiful capacities or you can really do, they can build amazing things because any nobody with, with just whatever education can just say, but it says right here. And then fundamentalism, and then you're back in the seventh century or you're back in the first century and you can never escape it because you won't admit that these books can be edited, that these are human books. And so I'd be much more willing to participate in religion if, you know, there was either a footnote in the scripture that, hey, we, I think this was wrong or we don't adhere to this anymore. Or um, some people, you know, just take things out. This is not morality. 
or or whatever so that we could say this is a human conversation let's edit this book so that when we give a kid the bible it's kind of the best wisdom that we have and it's a continuing conversation and this document changes as we change i'd be more up for that right but the fact is like you say if people are gonna get tribal about this religion it's because this is the book and this is the way and we do not edit a single word and so because that card is always there if you want um religion to just get better over time you'll never fully escape that just one guy can just take one scripture and boom you're just back backwards in history and you'll right. never be able to get out of that loop no matter how good religion does i think that's a good argument to put religion aside and say, let's try to build society on something else, on some other ideas. Yep. It's a double-edged sword and it feels like a loss for the Christian church either way. Mm, that's interesting. All right. Next one, because Christianity is stuck, the inability and unwillingness to ditch bad ideas, including sexism, racism, and so forth, because throwing a previous leader people doctrine under the bus is a dicey proposition that invites doubt. I think you said that before um, really beautifully. So Christianity stays stuck with bad ideas that it cannot self-correct for fear of inducing doubt. This is one that I feel like you could talk about for hours. Right? Yeah, and it really goes into the thing we just said. I mean, it's the same storyline. By the way, number seven kind of flowed in, flows into number six. Number six kind of flows into number four. Mm. Um, he's kind of hitting on specifics, but they kind of fall into just a handful of larger concepts um this idea of toxic theology it's the same thing we were just saying which is you have no ability to discard the bs um when i look at the scriptural canon and all of the conservative churches that promote the scriptures as needing to be taken literally to the extent where some christians go the bible is the perfect word of god and then you have faiths like Mormonism, which say the leaders at the top uh, have to be obeyed and, and followed loyally to a T. And there really isn't room to, to run counter to that. And so there isn't an ability uh, to ditch bad ideas. Mm -hmm. And so what you end up being left with, because we all sense it. Again, I said this at the beginning. We go ahead and mix our fabrics now. We go ahead and eat pork now. Like at some point we go, Jesus fulfilled the law, but these things we keep and these ones we don't. And we don't really have any logic for why we did that. You know, we stopped animal sacrifices, but we kept the Ten Commandments and we don't really have a reason for it. In the moment you allow a safe conversation about why that is. And you allow people to go like, oh, so like maybe I could discard what I want and keep what I want. You you eventually just have the faith essentially dwindle down to not being of value anymore. No one sticks around. Yeah. And I and I think you're finding that as you look out in the world, progressive churches have a lot of difficulty generally. There's a few out there, a handful that do really well. But the far and wide majority majority of them struggle to stay alive. They don't have a vibrant membership. They don't have um, they don't have the the kind of vibrancy that allows them to accomplish much. And they're struggling just to keep their doors open. Yeah, and that's why you know some people will say why why doesn't secular humanism have preschools and churches on every corner? Like in Christianity, um, I have. Like just on this street, I have multiple churches, multiple preschools, multiple projects, 
why is there not a secular humanism preschool? And the answer is, I don't think there'll ever be. There's not enough money because there's not enough fundamentalism on purpose, right? That's what they're trying to avoid. And so you'll never get the money to do some of those big projects. And so I think it's always going to be a local game. That could be, you're muted, but it could be better for people and healthier for people, but it's not without its own issues, which we'll talk about when we do reasons to stay. Yeah, there's just no vibrancy there. Yeah. All right. Um, because Christianity is a failed religion, lack of transformation. The theory is that Christianity has basically run its course, going through the stages of degeneration that all religions are prone to go through. Many religions and kingdoms have declined and failed, the gods no longer being worshipped. If Christianity is in the decline, perhaps it is a failed religion that needs to be allowed to die so something new can take its place. I'm on board for that. It's also bit. personal transformation. Like yeah. the things we've already named, the first seven of these are also blockades to people. In other words, the system is set up to go, here's the checklist. We show up at church every Sunday. You got to be active here. You got to, you know, put some money in the plate. You have to, uh, you know, do this, do that, check the boxes. Trans hum real human transformation just doesn't, fit a cookie cutter formula. And the other thing you have to do to allow human transformation is you have to allow people to weigh the good and bad of all ideas. So I need to be able to listen to Alan Watts and listen to my local minister. And I need to be able to have the free safe space to go. My inner gut tells me that Alan Watts is right and my minister is wrong. Mm. And so what religion does, because they're scared to death of that, is they begin to make certain voices not appropriate. Certain voices aren't safe. Certain voices aren't trustable. And so what it does is it closes itself off. It becomes a closed system. And you're not really safe. You know, if you're if you're in a conservative Christian church, you're not really safe to go study Buddhism. Mm. You're not really safe to go listen to Alan Watts. You're not really safe if if we... Uh, for instance, in Mormonism, if we have really unsafe boundaries around um, children and consent, we are not really comfortable with you going and reading Brene Brown. Yeah. And you can feel that as a believer that you're not exactly allowed to go and check out all these sorts of voices that are out on the outside edges or outside of your paradigm. Mm. And that really prevents the average human being from having access to the tools that lead to real transformation and development. The reason I also think that this is a good reason is that um, there are certain times in history where if I was living in that time, I don't think the answer would have been to leave religion. Like if you are living in, I don't know, 16th century Ireland, there is no website to find Bill Real to find your marriage in, a, in language that makes sense to you, right? You either get married at the church or nothing like that is the option right and so maybe we could never have done this in human history before because the church held such resources and all the rituals and all the arts and all the music and the stories and we needed that just to survive we needed that for community and all of that but maybe because of the internet and because we're a global world and because people can find their individual paths, maybe this is actually the first time in human history where we can allow religions to die and allow people to find their individual spiritual paths and have smaller kind of spiritual groupings, but not these big overarching, you know, Catholic church kind of things. I think maybe you had, this is the first time. 
I think you make a really good point. If you go back to the 1700s, whatever little town you are with your dirt roads and your seven buildings and your, you know, your King's castle or whatever, you, you would have had one church essentially, right? Like you would have in your, in your town would have been one church and that's where everybody goes. And the rigidity and shame and um, the rules that would have been in place that would have made it so that you come here and you essentially tolerate whatever it is we do to you. And you're right. Like we have finally gotten to a moment over the last couple of hundred years. And most recently with the advancement of the internet and having access to information, you're really at the first time in your life where you truly have a buffet in front of you. You absolutely have a cafeteria in front of you where you get to pick and choose what ideas are enlightening, what ideas feel true, what ideas uh, feel like growth and transformation to you. And to me, man, what a what an incredible moment yeah. we live in. Yes, I wouldn't want to go back and live in any other mm -hmm. time because I do think the best thing for most people most of the time back in history is to get the resources from the religion that's available. Um, but now instead of that kind of one town church that you do all the things in, you know, I don't have to go to the cathedral to hear music. I mean, imagine that was the only place you heard music. That's the only place you heard um, transcendent stories, you know, or got any sense of science of like how this all started, right? It's if all beautiful art. I mean, if, if that was the only place where you got those things, like the best place would be to go to church. But I mean, we have music in our ear all the time, right? And we have TED Talks. The fact that I don't have to go to a sermon in order to hear a TED Talk is amazing. So maybe this is the first time where we have enough resources available in the society, even though it's going to be hard because we're still trying to figure out this exodus from religion thing. Um, maybe, maybe this is the first time where we can give it a go and be successful at it because we can see these things in society and not just religion. Look how easy it is. Alexa, play uh, Dirty Heads. <laughs> so great. Songs by Dirty Heads. On right there. Music. Alexa, stop. So <laughs> if you would have taken that back in the church, you would have been probably, I don't know, either you were God or you'd be burned at the stake for being a witch. <laughs> the other thing, too, is I know what happens. I know what happens to people like you and me in the 1400s and 1500s. You're a heretic. For me as a for me as a woman, I don't have a chance. You're a witch. <laughs> you are going to do better than I will. <laughs> uh, I'm dying. They're burning me at the stake, and they're drowning you at the bottom yeah. of the sea. Probably. Probably. So, yeah, it's yeah, glad I to don't be in 2023. I don't want to go back. All right, mm -hmm. next one. Because of Christianity's great wall of bias, constricted intellectualism. Intellectualism and in education becomes a bad word, so it begins to create its own bias by having. A, a whole people not be encouraged to get educated, Christianity should fall apart because it can't adjust to what science says is going on. This one I see on TikTok every day because every day I talk about what we're talking about right here, right? And every day someone will say, it doesn't matter that you have an almost PhD in theology. You, I sat and read it and you can do more by just sitting and reading it than by studying the scriptures like I did, you know, for... 10 years in an actual theological seminary. So like me having gone to a seminary where I really rigorously have studied the Bible is seen as a bad thing, right? In, in a lot of these spaces, because it's better to just 
because intellectualism is a bad word and it's better to just, you know, either feel the spirit or um, intellectualism will lead you away from God or any of that. And that is hard, man. It's hard. It's hard to be told that your PhD and expertise in a subject makes you not an expert in that subject. It makes you actually a dumb person in that subject. Like that's hard to take. My ego sometimes takes a hit when I read those comments, I'll be honest. I, I, I mean, I understand it, but you know. I think this one is a lot like number two. And what I'm beginning to see is kind of this overarching theme, which is the church is broken. It's broken. It doesn't allow dissent. It's It, it maintains uh, unhealthy literalistic views of its canon. It promotes racism and sexism and homophobia. Um, the, the, the church promotes certain people to the top, and they tend to be people who are uh, influenced by power and greed. And um, at the end of the day, it just sounds like when we go through these 10 reasons, and again, now we're on uh, number nine, is that the church is broken. And, and I think that if you wake up and you realize that your religious faith, the church you go to on Sunday, doesn't function healthy. It isn't, it isn't working for you, for the others in the system, um, in a way that creates growth and transformation and transcendence, then you should be free to go. So constricted intellectualism is the reason that dissent isn't allowed. Uh, when you open up your, your system, uh, to constructive criticism and to enlightened views and you make it safe to go like, Oh, I'm glad you brought that up. Let's start moving that direction. Uh, the church essentially will suffocate to death eventually because it, because it's, we go back to the whole idea of it's no longer understood to be literal and it doesn't get the adherence it used to. Uh, so now you see why people want to constrict intellectualism and why they don't want dissent. Yeah, you can totally see it because even, um, you know, in our previous religion at, at BYU, there's kind of this underlying thing where if you're an undergraduate and you say, I want to go into biblical studies, you'll be encouraged by your professors to not do that. Specifically because if you go to school to learn biblical history, if you go and study the Old and New Testament, you are not coming back. And if you do, it's not in the same way, right? It's not in the approved narrative way. And so they'll literally tell these kids that just really want to study the Bible and they're really good with, you know, working with text that don't go down this road. Don't, like, you need to be a professor of religion and scripture, but don't get your education. Like, don't go down that road towards actual being, uh, having your degree be in ancient scripture because we'll, you know, we'll not see you. And so that that's a problem. If you get more education and you can't come back or you can't say the things that you're supposed to say, that's a problem. So your choices are to change or to just say, well, education is bad. And so now we just say education is bad and that's awful. Yeah. If you take this religion too seriously, if you really mm -hmm. want to know it inside and out, that's not going to go well. That one hurt. That one hurt in my faith deconstruction. I'll be honest. That one, like, I just kind of felt a, a nerve there because there were so many people who really just when I was kind of in faith crisis and I was trying to reach out to people and talk to people, it was like, it was this sense that 
people would tell me like, you're taking this too seriously. Like you were too Mormon. And I was like, what, what was I supposed to do here? Like you, you want me to be Mormon, but not too Mormon. And that's what I felt like they wanted me to be Mormon, but not too Mormon that you like study everything and try to make sense of it. Like that's too Mormon. And it was mm -hmm. like, well, I can't, I can't do this with you guys. That part was hard. All right. Last one for reasons to leave. Because Christianity is a sinking, shrinking ship of wrinkling people, demographics. Many sects literally don't have anyone attending under the age of 55. In the past, it could slowly adjust to pressure, but it is too slow, too constricted, too old to drastically change enough to get Gen Z on board. So it should die with everything else that can't keep up. Yeah, which is another sign that we live in an age where people have access to information. People are now in the arena of free ideas and free thinking. They have the ability to test what they're being told within seconds uh, by simply hitting a button and asking their phone a question and 40 websites jump up with answers. And they get to use their inner intuition to figure out what makes the most rational sense to them. And in lieu of the other nine that we went through, the recognition that the church doesn't work and it's broken, what you end up with is a church that is just little by little decaying away and shrinking. And we're seeing it everywhere. The nuns are the largest growing group. Um, and I don't know that very many Christian religions are doing very well right now. They're either stagnant or in deep decline, somewhere in between maybe. Um, but all of those things added up together. If I was part of a church where I was 20 years old and I was looking around the congregation and there's nobody my age and everybody's in their 60s, 50s, 70s, I'd go find somewhere else to hang out. Yeah. And I do think um, this one is a good argument because I think he's right that in the past, you could slowly adjust to pressure. So when the Catholic Church starts selling indul indulgences, then you get Martin Luther to nail his theses on the wall. And then 100 years later, you have Lutheranism and you kind of have time to like, OK, that was wrong. Let's pull it back here. Um, but now you have this generation where, OK, they need this now. They're Gen Z but the church can't change fast enough to meet them, right? And so I was on this debate with this guy named Dr. Richard Wadsworth. He's an active Mormon, and we started to stitch each other's videos, and we had a little bit of a debate. And I asked him, because uh, he, was, he was trying to pull out all the good of religion, and I understood all of that. And my argument with him is this isn't fast enough for Gen Z. They're not going to get on board. What do we like? How is what I'm doing trying to do secular spirituality where you have less hoops to jump through? How is that a worse gift to Gen Z than saying, you know, learn all of Mormonism and deconstruct it? And then he said something to the effect of, you know, where Mormonism now is now isn't going to be where it is 50 years from now, because when the people who are 40 now are leading the church, then it's going to be better. And I said, I'm sorry, we have to give Gen Z something better than wait 50 years. That was yeah. literally his argument to me is that keep like just in 50 years, the 90 year olds die, the 40 year olds are, are doing the church. It'll, it'll change. And it's not, it's not fast enough. Yeah. I'm not going to ask a kid, to stay in the church for 50 years to wait it for it to be something that's spiritually valuable to him or her. Don't you feel like you've always been given that message? And, and here's what I mean. 
it takes on a different uh, articulation, but it's like, hey, be patient. When we die and get to the other side, it'll all be resolved there. And all you're doing is moving the the, the goalpost a little bit, you know. So now I'll be seventy year old, seventy years old when I see progress. But you and I both know I won't see enough progress that it would have been worth it to stay to be with that church at seventy years old because it's still not going to be healthy enough. Yeah, and, so, and it's like, how are you going to get Gen Z on board if your if your church um, is homophobic? You want them to get on board, wait fifty years and then get some good out of Mormonism. Like that's, that's your answer. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry, like that cannot be the best option here. If that's the best that religion has to offer is sorry, we suck. Give us, give us 50 give years. Yes. Then you, you sure as hell should just walk away. Mm, that's interesting. Okay. So we're going to go to part two, which is reasons to stay. And do you mind Bill taking a little halftime? I'm going to go use the restroom and I'll be right back. Sounds good. So give me, Um, so while she's gone for just a moment, um, you know, th thoughts about this, I, I, I'm excited to get to the end of this conversation so that Britt and I can maybe share what some reasons are that we think are valuable for maybe staying and leaving. And I, I don't know that we'll need to spend a ton of time on, I think we could probably just list a few here and there, but it is interesting. We've gone through these reasons to leave. And I think they're all very deeply interconnected. And again, I, I say it points to a broken church. But now we're going to get into these reasons to stay. And I'm actually really interested to hear these. I haven't sat down and prepared. Normally, I'll sit down when Britt prepares an outline and I'll put some time and effort into it. I was out on a cruise and just got back. And uh, and hence, uh, I haven't had a chance to sit down with these. So these are kind of fresh to me as she's reading them off. And I'm really excited, Britt, as you begin to read these ones for reasons to stay, to see. I'll try to go into my own head, and I, and I would challenge you to do the same and see if if these reasons are strong enough for us to go back into the system we came from or to go into another system. I, I would suppose our answers are going to be no, but maybe to at least consider, to really consider the the impetus that he's trying to suggest for why one might want to stay. Okay, let's do it. All right, so the first one is because leaving hurts allies and helps their opponents. This is the age-old problem that if you throw a party and invite everyone, including white supremacists, the racists are going to eventually be the only ones at that party. When all the good people leave, the bad people suddenly think they are normal and start insulting the ones who left. The other side of the coin is if we let unhealthy, if we all leave when we feel prompted, unhealthy churches, then we're in an age now where those unhealthy churches will dwindle down to nothing or near nothing. And then all that will be left will be this tiny little church with 25 people in it that just want to hold bigoted and racist and homophobic ideas. And at that point, they'll have so little numbers, they won't have any power influence to hurt people. So in other words, if we all stay to make it better, we actually might be doing a greater amount of harm because there's more people being affected than if we just let these churches dwindle down to nothing. Yeah. And this goes back and we've talked about this in other places 
because we'll talk about what are religious moderates doing? Are they helping extend the unhealthiness of religion by showing all these good sides and doing all these kind of gymnastics things? And this word doesn't mean this, it can mean this. Is that um, helping the church keep it away from fundamentalism or those sane, beautiful people doing that work? Are they actually extending kind of the life of the church and all the harm that it's doing by doing that? And I think that's really interesting argument. And again, I kind of go where you are that that um, if everybody does leave and the only thing that's left is racist and white supremacist or the most fundamentalist or whatever, then it kind of will eventually kind of self-collapse because there's nothing, especially Gen Z, they're not going to get on board with that. So maybe that would actually be the path to something new, better arising rather than trying to um, you know, adjust these religions so that they're helpful to people. So I see the argument. Um, I think for me personally, checking in with myself, I would do this if I still believed in God and Jesus. I think that was the difference for me. So when I still believed in God, but I didn't think that Mormonism was the one true way. I just thought these are all kind of paths of Christianity or even just paths to God. Then there was enough there for me to stay and be helpful and draw out the beautiful um, arguments and all of that. But then once I lost my faith in God, there was no way for me to stay without being intellectually dishonest because the gap between what you're saying and how I would word that is now so great that we may just be speaking different languages at this point. And if I stayed, I'm an ally on the outside too. Like I'm still mm -hmm. an ally to just causes on the outside of the faith I came from. If I stayed in the faith, I'm going to be continually traumatized all the time. It was to the point where I was experiencing trauma showing up in my body. Yeah. Um, and so I had to step away. And uh, I can do the same sort of work from the outside. Now, you know, you don't reach the same people, but you reach probably the same number of people. Mm. Um, and people have access to you as a tool and resource. And there also needs to be some room for people on the inside to get bumped into enough that they also begin to wake up. And if you smooth things over, you're stopping their process of human awakening as well. Do you think that if the internet wasn't a thing, um, you'd be more inclined to show up at church every once in a while because, mm. um, that kid that's gay, if you don't have like times where we were isolated and you have, don't have the internet. So whatever's being said at church is real. And so that kid may not have ever heard that he's gay and it's okay. And he's not fundamentally broken. I feel like I would be more willing to do this if the internet doesn't exist. Right. Yeah. I think it's a, like you pointed out with the earlier, uh, point in the reasons to leave. If it's the 1400s or the 1600s, we're going to operate very differently. It's not that. And, and at some point, you know, this, this system may change too. I mean, if something happened that took the electrical grid down, we would all go right back to a hunter gatherer society immediately. Um, there's just, it wouldn't function. And so it only works in this modern moment with the way things are now, where we live in a world society where you get to be aware of and interact with people all across the globe and you have access to information uh quickly at the uh at the tip of your finger mm -hmm. and 
if long as those things are in place, I think you have the incredible ability to do as much work changing a system for the better from the outside as you do from the inside. Yeah. And that's why I feel, I mean, I used to love working with the youth when, when I was in church and I feel less bad about, you know, what he's saying is, you know, leaving them uh, because I literally have a Gen Z spiritual program on my website where if a parent wants to, it really wants to do healthier spirituality, you don't have to go to church to go to young women's to find me. If you're looking for me, you can hopefully find me and I have better resources that are more appropriate for Gen Z that is right there. And so I don't feel as bad for those kids leaving because if, if there was a parent who really could have wanted their kids to work with me in the youth program or wanted them to be my seminary teacher, you can find me out here too. And so that makes it less of a, you know, I'm leaving them kind of thing. Yeah. If it were the 1980s, mm. would I stay in church? Because I don't yeah. know that I would want to do what Gerald and Sandra Tanner did, which for folks yeah. who aren't Mormon, they are folks who criticized the church from the outside, but did it before the internet. So they published periodicals and pamphlets and went to things and passed things out. And it, it was just a much, uh, there was a lot more physical work involved and a lot more kind of getting bumped into being criticized uh, because you were the only one or one of the few people doing it. I might've stayed to do the work from the inside if it was 1980s. Mm, I love that. How about you? Yeah. Um, I, I think I might have to, <laughs> yeah. I like, cause I don't know. It, it'd be so hard because anyone that I meet who says, you know, I went through my faith crisis in the seventies or eighties, like people, older people who come to our group, I just have an instant respect for those people because you you took this leap that we're talking about, which was hard for you and me. We spent years kind of on the fence checking things out. And some people took that leap and it was into nothingness. Yeah. Like there's no post Mormon community to support that. There's no, oh, this is, you know, mass exodus from churches. That's when the Catholic church started really ramping up, right? And it's political involvement. So it looked like everything was going up. And um, yeah, it, it'd be really hard to do that. I do hope that I would have, done the best I could with the truth I had. Like I can hope that about myself that I, that, um, cause you know, I went through times where it was hard, where I felt like I was the only person who knew this, even though I wasn't. Um, and so I, I hope that I would have been intellectually honest back then, but I might've associated with the church more to try to make sense of all of it alone. Right. That would have been really hard to do from the outside. Yeah, totally. Um, I guess we all try to figure out where we can make a difference in the world. And, and, you know, you say like essentially intellectual honesty, but I was always compartmentalizing. And I think if I grew up in the 1980s, it would have just been that much easier just to keep compartmentalizing because without the internet there, the church at the top level couldn't come after bill real. It just wouldn't work that way. It would be the local Bishop or the local state president is bothered by something I'm saying. And I just don't know that I ever was going to affect my ward or stake that way. It was going to take them seeing the public presence on a, uh, not a local level, but a more general level for the general church to go like, Hey, we've had enough of that guy. Yeah. And that would have been harder. Cause if I would have, you know, especially as a woman in the church, I don't know if I would have 
been threatened with excommunication, but I didn't feel like I had enough resources for my children to be able to replace the community, you know, that Mormonism can be for people. I don't know if I would have been brave enough to jump anyway, or if that would have even been a good idea. I don't know. And isn't it isn't the isn't Mormonism again? I don't want to spend too much time here talking about Mormonism, but isn't Mormonism is a case study? Yeah. yeah, isn't Mormonism at the local level, at your ward level, a thousand times? Again, it's got it's got its own unhealthiness. Don't get me wrong; it's a thousand times more true than church office building Mormonism. Yeah, 100%. like what the church does at the general level is is exponentially more dishonest, unethical, unhealthy. Abusive, yeah. traumatic, and deceptive than your local. I heard uh, someone, ward. a philosopher, who said, you know, where, where a philosopher was asked, you know, where do you stand politically? And he said, I'm a communist with my family. I'm a socialist with my friends. Um, I'm a Democrat in the state level. And then I'm a libertarian on the federal level because I want to be in your family, you're a communist. This is the system. We're all putting into the yeah. system here. Uh, but as you get to those bigger institutions, you got to pull that power back. And so I thought yeah. that was an interesting statement. It is. Man, we, we're we not as consistent as we think we are, are we? Yeah. yeah. All right. Next one. Because, by the way, I'm loving, the, I'm loving this conversation because most of the conversation is leave the church because of these things. Stay in the church because you feel blah, blah, blah. And just the fact that you and I can sit here and say, oh, at this time, I probably would have stayed. Or this, I don't think is a good enough reason. I think I'd still leave. Just even just having that is just such a beautiful thing in the world. And I'm just, yeah. I love that. All right. Next one. Because leaving defiantly or staying compliantly are not my only options. This is a shout out by the author to stay on your own terms, to take what works and discard the rest. Feels like we've had this discussion plenty. You might get sidelined, but as Julia Roberts says in Pretty Woman, I say who, I say when. So it's essentially like you can stay if you give yourself permission to be a cafeteria Christian, cafeteria Mormon. And, you know, staying compliantly is not your only option. You can stay rebelliously. You can stay minimally. There's all kinds of reasons you can stay. And that, I think, is a fair argument. Yeah, and I think for most people, until the moment where it simply doesn't work or hold together anymore, this is exactly what they're doing. Yeah. Even the people and who that, believe more literally, I think on some level, this is what almost everyone who stays is doing. Yeah. And I don't think you can you can skip that too. Like skip that kind of cafeteria. I'm going to start setting my own boundaries step because imagine like when you and I met or even before we met like 50. 15 years ago, let's imagine, imagine us listening to one of our podcast conversations. Someone from the future says, here, Bill Real, listen to yourself in the future. And you're talking about mushrooms and all kinds of atheistic, whatever, woo things. Like you wouldn't even know how you got there. You, you no. couldn't, you'd be so terrified. Mm. You couldn't, you couldn't just like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I'll go that direction. You wouldn't even know how mm -hmm. until you go through that stage of like, well, I'm this feels not okay. So I'm going to start putting a boundary here. Like you kind of have to do that first. It is interesting. If, if younger Bill had met older Bill. Yeah. Would what, would, been, what would younger Bill have thought about old Bill? Older Bill. If, if he didn't know that it was him in the future, he would have thought that person's a heretic or something. It, it wouldn't have made sense. Um, mm. 
he wouldn't have made sense of it because his world fit together so beautifully and he loved it the way it was. And he wanted nothing more than it to just keep going on the path it was going. And if nothing changed, that was the most true life that could be. Yeah. Yeah. I think if I, I think if younger me saw older me, I'd be really scared that I lost God. I think that would have really scared me like in the, because when I started a faith deconstruction, I didn't lose God right away. Like I held on to God for a long time. And that was almost like a landing platform that allowed me to kind of faith deconstruct. But that was kind of like holding on. That was a structure holding on to a lot of fears. And so seeing me kind of lose my faith in God, I think that would have scared me. Yeah. Fine girl said younger me would have been envious because I got out. I, I wouldn't mm. have been. I would have been like, hmm. Not I don't sure like, about I don't that. like where this guy went. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, because where else would I go? Where will you go? Where will you go? <laughs> I feel like somebody's used these before. I don't know, like almost to a T. Yeah, because because they're just some of these things. It, it doesn't matter if it's in Mormonism or Christianity or what brand of Christianity. It's going to show up, right? It's yeah. just going to show up in the narrative. And so, go? you know, what institution is significant and pure of corruption? And I, I do understand this argument and I get it a lot, especially with the, you know, just leave America. If you, if you don't like America, homeschool your kid, all your kids, if you don't want to put them in school because there's things going on at school. And I, I understand the argument, but like we were talking about earlier, there is a difference between institutions. Some institutions are healthier than others. Some allow for healthiness to continue to improve and some shut that down. So you can't just say, oh, if you leave the church, you're gonna go live in a cave. Like, no, there's a big difference between, you know, Scientology and my local Girl Scouts program. Like there are grades of gradation in between those two institutions. So that's where I go with that one. And I'll just add, I. I, I know that the argument's going to be, Bill, stop, think about it. There's tons of systems you belong to. Obviously, I'm an American, but I don't really spend much time thinking about politics. I don't know that, again, no offense to the audience, I don't really care much about voting anymore. I still do, but I don't really care much anymore. I just don't think it makes much difference. And I think both choices often are unhealthy, uh, especially at the national level. And uh, because I don't pay much attention to politics, I get up every day, I come in my office, I run this nonprofit that helps to give people information so that they can deconstruct unhealthy religious ideas and make new informed choices. And I go out and hang out with my wife and my friends and people can go, your friends are a system. Sure. But we are at the smallest group level and I tend to not get involved beyond that because I just don't see the value and I see it takes an emotional toll. Even just to watch the news every day takes a toll on you. Yeah, my and mom watches the news every day. So when she comes over and it's five o'clock, which is already a stressful time in my household, she'll turn on the news and I literally cannot stand it. Yeah, I, it just feels as though for my own well-being, and for the good that I like to do in the world, I'm better off staying in my own little space. And uh, I just, I, so when you say, where else will you go? I'll just stay at my house and take my mm. wife bowling and go to dinner at the Indian restaurant and go to a concert and hang out with my friends. Yeah. And some of that's money too. Like as soon as you pay, like I'm hooked up to a sewer network and I pay a bill for it. And I don't know, like there's, there's smaller, it almost seems like the smaller 
like the city sewer bill seems to be less corrupt than some of these huge, big, giant institutions, right? And so it's, it almost seems like the local the local level is really where it's at, which we may be able to do now. Just wanted to know it. what Fine Girl here says. Again, mm. we, we only got two people watching uh, <laughs> because, again, we did this on Thursday. Normally we're on Tuesdays, and we had a glitch at the beginning that I think cost us. But I love this discussion so much, but sadly I have to run to a staff meeting. I'll have to finish it tonight. Thank you for talking about this. So mm. thanks, Fine Girl. All right. Next one is because it would be a shame to leave a religion in its infancy. Judaism can now hold different political parties and has become a culture in America where truth claims have been dropped along the way until it's all that's left is a helpful community conversation. Every religion with time could also become that. We're 2000 years into Christianity. <laughs> You think it's had its time? If you're telling me we're still at five-year-olds and I got to wait another 32,000 years to get to be a teenager or something? Yeah, you got to wait at least three or 4,000 years so that it can catch up to how old Judaism is. That seems like another one of these, like, yeah, give it another 50 years. And, you know, it's it's like, yeah, your 17th great-grandchildren, they're going to see a cool thing. You ought to just hang around and help make that happen. I think there's a much better chance that religion as we know it completely dies by the time that uh brian thinks that religion will mature Uh, if we're two thousand years into christianity and it's still as effed up as it is uh i would rather just uh count my losses and move along yeah the only the only thing i would give to this argument that i think is a good idea and he didn't really mention it is is that um when you're trying to get communities together, and we've talked many times before about how myths and stories are really what do that. And let's say that we try to do that, but it's on the secular level. And so we're trying to find rituals in society or in communities that do all the things that religions used to do. That's going to be really hard without a story. And so to this argument, it may be easier to deconstruct and reinterpret the stories, because at least those are there. We have something like Easter, like maybe if we give it a thousand years where Christianity loses even more truth claims than it's had to give up, maybe Easter becomes a spring celebration. And maybe that's an easier path to get a community to just gather together and celebrate spring or renewal or whatever you want to rebrand that as, than trying to get people like even atheists, you know, trying There's no like atheist. I'm surprised even maybe I shouldn't be that there's not one atheist day on the calendar for atheists to do something, to go look at the stars, to go have a beer for Christopher Hitchens and say, rest in peace. I don't, you know, whatever it is, maybe we can only do that with stories. So maybe we have to do like Judaism, which is to deconstruct the story enough to the point where all the truth claims have been lost because you've just been, around too long to hold on to any of them. So all you have left are rituals and community and Passover and they just, they mean different things. And you can be an atheist Jew and you can be an atheist rabbi. Maybe that's the easiest path to get to communal rituals. What do you think about that? If the congregation has a safe space to look at the authority and go, you're as full of shit as we are. And that's safe. Maybe. But it feels as though um, 
we're we're set up so that the authority inside the system is always in charge and always gets to deem what's right or wrong. And so I think what you're saying works. Like we can create a much softer landing. We can all have ritual. We can not take this stuff literally, but it requires like all of us to be able to look at each other and go, you're not it either, buddy. And mm -hmm. uh, religious systems that thrive don't seem to have that component. And I do think the reason that this argument doesn't hold true for me, because I hear a lot of people make the Judaism argument that, hey, let's just let religion do its thing. By the end, all that's left is community. And that's really hard to do from the secular side anyway. But the difference is that Judaism does have a history of it being a conversation, right? So um, not just in the Old Testament, but all of the books of Judaism, there's a specific thing in that religious community that says, this is a conversation. And that is, that is well known, right? That is from the beginning. Um, just in Judaism, they talk about, hey, this is a conversation that is helpful. And so I think because they had that there, that, hey, this is a conversation, and sometimes they change their version of God as a part of that conversation, then maybe they were the only ones who would be able to make that leap. Whereas Christianity has certain authority and claims and keys and Jesus is coming again and this kind of thing. Um that Judaism just seems to be more flexible on because it's always kind of claimed to be a long-standing conversation. So maybe it's unique in that way and not all religions are going to go that way, especially one where, you know, Jesus says, here are the keys to salvation or whatever. Um, There's another one, by the way, hang yeah. on, Jesus is coming. You know, he, he's coming soon. Like just, yeah. just wait here. I promise you it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm all right, next one. Because of our legendary founder, Jesus is not the worst leader you can find for a people to try and emulate. He's a homeless mystic, loves radically, pushes against power and money, and helps the marginalized. Let me ask you this. Mm. Would you personally benefit more in your own spiritual journey if you spent six hours a day studying the teachings of Jesus or if you spent six hours a day finding voices that you know to be wise uh, that you would enjoy reading from. So I'll give examples. Um, Eckhart Tolle, Brene Brown, Miguel Ruiz with the Four Agreements, um, listening to folks like Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson uh, debate something out, uh, listening to Joe Rogan interview a scientist uh, about the nature of the earth and how we should take care of it. Um, when you when you weigh all of the available voices that are out there, and I'm talking specifically the ones, and again, I named ones that are to me, you pick the ones in your head that you find valuable to you, isn't being refocused towards Jesus going to actually take you away from the things that would actually help you more than focusing on Jesus? Yeah, I agree. And the reason that I agree is the people who speak to Jesus really beautifully. I would put Brian McLaren in this camp, Richard Rohr type people mm -hmm. who really have a beautiful view of Jesus, like not, you know, second amendment, America, Jesus. Right. Uh, but people who have a really beautiful view of, each, of Jesus had to step out and learn more mysticism outside of the system, learn wisdom from other voices outside of the system. And then you can return to Jesus and see really beautiful things, right? But from Christianity, from the inside, that's not what you're getting, right? Mm -hmm. 
And so I see, I see the point that um, there's even a really good point there for political gods, that if, if humans are always going to create gods, Jesus is a better God than a political God, because mm -hmm. Jesus at least says some really good stuff, some wisdom stuff, whereas like Stalin does not. Right. So if that's our option, if the option, because we're so, you know, our, our human um, natural impulses is to create hierarchies and put, you know, something like God on top. And that's what we always do. I would rather have Jesus than a political leader, because at least you have some room for some kind of mysticism and wisdom there. Whereas in politics, you never do. You never have to be wrong because um, they, they there's just no, there's no wisdom in it. It's just pure tribalism and power and money and all the things. Um, so I, I get the argument, but like you, it's like, it, I didn't learn about Jesus from the inside. I went outside and then could come back and appreciate Jesus. So was it really Jesus or was it all of this wisdom that made me then see Jesus in a different way than what I was taught? Yeah. And as you're pointing out, like if, if somebody gives you a false dichotomy, like you can either take Hitler or Jesus, and of course, I'm going to take Jesus. But yeah. if I'm given, if I'm told, look, there's the internet, there's mm -hmm. libraries, there is Audible, there's YouTube, there is all the podcast apps. Um, you can go and read the things that interest you from the wise voices that have written and published in those areas. And, or you can go into the New Testament and read about Jesus, where it is a mix of some things that Jesus said that were good, a few things he said that were bad, and then a whole hodgepodge of things inserted around him that are a mix of good and bad, and maybe even more bad than good. And I'm supposed to make a life of that? No, I'll take Alan Watts and Brene Brown yeah. every day. And that may be a reason why this is a better opportunity to um, leave religion than in the even in the 20th century when leaving religion really did kind of give rise to some political gods, maybe we have a better chance to not, you know, if the internet would have been going on during the Holocaust where people were, t were writing out their story of what was happening to them and the whole world was watching, maybe we have a chance to avoid some of those political gods because of the age that we're now in. That's the hope, right? I hope that. So, all right, next one, because innocence is an addiction and solidarity is the cure. Essentially, the innocence referred to here is like the sin of certainty. It's the innocence of keeping our blinders on, of seeing things in black and white, and of not really addressing problems by talking about them and seeing them for what they are. This innocence is to create purity, which leads to a feeling of superiority and Christian supremacy while avoiding dealing with all the messiness of life. When we actually see the human problems in the world, the only way to tackle them is together. We only try to tackle them when we develop empathy, which we only do when we get out of our bub bubble and quit feeling superior. So I think, and I heard this on a podcast. Um, so what I think he's saying here is that when you begin to see Christian problems, you actually begin to see them as human nature problems, which we've talked about on the podcast, that we create gods, that we have fears that drive wanting to have a cult leader tell us what to do, right? So once you see these problems as human problems and not quote unquote Christian problems, then it gives you the space to say, okay, I can work on this and, and kind of help humanity in whatever way I can um, avoid this kind of 
avoid these problems and I can do it exactly where I'm at. So I may as well stay because these are human problems, not Christian problems. Yeah. I got to think this one through for a moment. So essentially innocence referred to as the sin of certainty that, that we should, that we should hang around so that there is a more full discussion so that folks who are naive or innocent can hear other views and be impacted to see humanity in a more fullness, right? Yeah. But the trouble is in his first list of 10, we're told the reasons that are reasonable to leave. And they're the reasons that get in the way of this number 16. So if I'm not allowed to dissent, if I'm not allowed to raise a critical voice. If certain people are always in charge, if the church is much more concerned about wealth and money. Or in your my, case, if you get excommunicated from the community. For trying to rid ourselves of the innocence, right? Yeah. Essentially, this is a beautiful idea in a vacuum, but because it exists along the 10 problems of why to leave, it actually never, you never really get to stay and help the innocence of others. Uh, and if you do, you have to do it in such a slow, painful way that you have to take on uh, emotional trauma in doing so. Mm. Yeah. And I'm speaking from a from a point of being in, in this high-demand fundamentalist religion. Look, I, I was a member of a cult for 20 years. You were a member of a cult for whatever years you were, because I think you were born into it, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm speaking from a system that was uber unhealthy. Maybe somebody can come along and go, Bill, if you were a member of the Methodist church down the street from me, you wouldn't have that problem. You would be allowed to speak openly. You'd be allowed to... But the trouble is I don't believe Methodism because I don't believe Jesus is real. And I don't believe the New Testament is the word of God. And so I can't figure out a way to go back into any system when I just don't believe any of it literally, because in my own personal life, the myths that I value and the places I get my transcendence are of much more value than getting up on a Sunday morning, dressing in a shirt and tie and going to the Methodist church down the street from you. Yeah. And I do, I do think though it is healthy. I don't think you have to go back or stay in the church to do this, but I do think it's healthy in the, you know, not in the maybe first year or two after deconstruction, but I'm talking a decade or two later to really go back and look at your church and do see the humanity of it. Mm -hmm. Right. Do see like, this is human nature. Right. And I do think that that is healthy to do. Because people ask me this all the time. Like, if you don't believe in God, why are you studying religion? Why do you still continue to study religion? Why do I go to any time I travel, whatever the temple is, I'm going to the sacred place. And it's because through studying religion, I learned about human nature and I learned about myself. Right. And so I do think that that is healthy to see that, you know, these these problems. And, and sometimes when you're right first at your faith deconstruction, you may be think that this is just inherent in the institution and maybe not see that it's human nature. So I, I think there's a little argument there to be said that, that it is healthy to see um, humans do this because this is human nature there, and in all of us have these tendencies. Right. And so giving it some humanity, I think is healthy, but it doesn't mean that you have to stay. Don't you think that if you went to the Methodist church down the street from you, it would be pretty peaceful. It, you wouldn't. Yeah. I'm not, wouldn't I wouldn't be triggered by it. Yeah. I wouldn't be triggered by it. I'd be able to see like, Oh, this is, 
humans have a fear of death. This is how they're dealing with it. Humans have rituals. Oh, this is their ritual, right? I'm learning about human nature as mm. I'm experiencing it. But the downside, I think, and I think you probably agree, is it would just be boring as hell. It's probably it, it. The boring and isolating thing about it is that it's almost like I understand you more than you guys understand yourselves, right? Yeah. Because I've been down the path. I've been studying this so long that um, I see what we're doing here, right? It's like you see how the sausage gets made. And so, like, it becomes less and less interesting when someone says, oh, this is the one true church. Like if we were to walk into a different church and they were to say, this is the one true path, you and I would be just so bored, right? Just mm. like, oh, oh put a you guys brain. all think that, huh? <laughs> oh my gosh, give me a revolver. Let me blow my brains out. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? But, yeah. and it wouldn't, I don't think it would necessarily be triggering. It would just be like, there it is again. Like, this is what yeah. humans do. Here's the tendency. And then you feel lonely because it's like, they're in the Wizard of Oz and you're peeking behind the curtain. Like this is this is not a show for me. <laughs> like this is not doing anything for me. And you can see it. Somebody somewhere had a transcendent experience. And then they came back to the tribe and said, I know what it is. I know mm. what it is. Let me tell you, here's the rules we're going to play by. And or the sometimes is- I think with Jesus, he just started talking and he didn't even say like, this is the playbook. They made a playbook around him. Oh, yeah. He said a few good things and they created the rest of it. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. All right, next one. Because I'm human, and churches are human institutions full of humans. Basically, you need social groups to thrive in life. Belonging to groups of people for whom you care and who care for you is essential. Even better if they are your neighbors. Even better if they all have different perspectives and still love and care for each other anyway. And I'm going to add an argument to this. Someone said, it was actually... um, Terrell Givens said that the sociological genius of Mormonism was to draw a square and to say, love these people. And that there's no other, certainly no secular institution that draws a square of random people and there'll be old people and leftists and people on the right and say, try to bump into and hear these people that are gonna be different from you and they're gonna rub you the wrong way and um, try to love these people and you'll grow in the process. What do you think about that? Yeah, if you could draw a random square around a hundred random people, and in that random square were uh, folks who were gay and lesbian and transgender, there was white people and black people and tan people, there were men and there were women, and there were uh, folks who don't fit into either of those binary labels, uh, then yeah, I would do that. And I'll tell you another thing I would do, like this number 17. If you lived uh, a block down the street from me, and Anthony Miller lived another block the other direction and Janice Bang. And you guys said, look, every Sunday, let's go visit a different church. And then let's go to lunch afterward and talk about it. And mm-hmm. let's, I'd do that in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. That sounds magical. Mm-hmm. But um, to go to a church simply because there's humans there, I got plenty of humans that I like <laughs> to be around. Yeah. And, and I get, we need to be challenged. And I think mm-hmm. I put myself in spaces to be challenged by opposing viewpoints all the time. I don't think I need to stick myself in a building for two hours or three hours with humans that uh, that believe things that I couldn't even begin to get on board with. I don't know that I need to suscept myself to that to have a better life. I, that yeah. doesn't make sense to me. I wonder, so, you know, the social media aspect here is a two-edged sword because you and I can have this lovely conversation even though we're not neighbors, but also you can get on social media and 
eventually get it to the point where the only people who are in your circle are people who think and are just like you, right? And so if that is where social media is taking us, is there a wisdom in showing up at a building? Because that may be the only place in the future where people actually bump into each other face to face and have to hear a story without the algorithm saying, oh, you wouldn't like the story. It's an argument. It is. That is an argument. And we live in a world where that is sort of true, isn't it? It's sort of true. But I do think the reality is if I would like I'm playing chess with myself here, my counter argument to that would be that Gen Z has heard more stories in just one year being on TikTok or Instagram than their great grandparents did their whole life. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. they, the reason that they're different, the reason that they're more um, acceptable and empathetic is the, because they hear more stories and see different walks of life than any other human generation before them. So I, like you, I don't think that we have to show up at the building to bump into humans. I think as a global society, that's just going to become inherent. And even if, um, even if social media does make that hard and there's challenges, I do think that we are um, conversing just at a greater rate than we used to when maybe that was the only time you had social time was when all these people on different farms went to the local church house. But it's not that way anymore. We're talking to each other all the time. Yeah. And like you're pointing out, because of the way the world is, you're interacting with people of different ethnicities, uh, different heritages, different life experiences, different sexual attractions, different um, races, different um, traditions. Like, yes, the algorithms are putting in front of us the things that we'll keep scrolling through and watching. And we have access to people's experiences all across the world. And I think both things are happening simultaneously. Yeah, I think so too. All right, next one. Uh, because Christianity is changing, the kids could bring in a whole new era of social justice Jesus. We just saw that new commercial at the Super Bowl even. Maybe Christianity will change to respond to the pressure that it's facing and social justice Jesus that Gen Z will usher in. We know that they're more politically active. We know that they're more into diversity and empathy and all these things. Maybe they're going to bring in social justice Jesus that will make the world a better place. This also seems like, hey, wait 50 years. Mm. And I'll add, when you guys have it all cleaned up and ready to rock and roll, let me know. <laughs> like, I don't yeah. need to waste my time in it while you get it ready. It'll be funny. I, it's funny that you need social Jesus to make the world better because the Christianity that's in power, you know, is the one stopping it. So it's really like it's Jesus versus Jesus in that, in that scenario right? It's, it's kind of the Christian right versus this kind of younger social Jesus left and both sides. So it's, I mean, which one is Jesus? Like it's Jesus versus Jesus here. Maybe we need to get off the Jesus game and try another game. Yeah. I don't buy a car as parts before it goes to the factory mm. and you go like, Hey, here's a pile of parts, buy this. And you know, we'll see you in a year and, and we'll have a car made for you. Um, I think to buy into like, Hey, stay here. We're changing this thing. Uh, no, <laughs> you go ahead and change it and let me know when you got it completed and I'll evaluate the finished product. 
And if the finished product is worth my investment of time and energy, I will go. And, and I think to, to, to be fair to you, I think you would. If, if Christianity really starts changing because it's being so rejected and they just do this whole social justice Jesus thing, and all of a sudden the Christians in your area start to be the ones to organize um, just like blood drives and community events and helpful things. And they're protesting things that are wrong and they're putting pedophiles in jail. I could see you going out and being like, okay, all right, I can get down with this Jesus. I'll join your protest because, or whatever they're doing. And if Sunday school was a room full of 50 people sitting around and giving really fair weight to perspectives that are informed, then that conversation alone would be worth going back to church. Mm -hmm. If I could sit in a room and go, Hey, what are you guys reading? What are you thinking about? what did you see in the news? How does, how does this affect how we all show up as human beings? I'd do that in a minute, but mm -hmm. we all know that's not how it works. And I'm not going to start attending church on the promise of what it might be at some future point. Cause mm -hmm. it's gone 2000 years. My hunch is another hundred isn't going to make this thing any that much better. Yeah, and it does seem to me if we're going to be in a battle of left-wing Jesus and right-wing Jesus that, you know, it just seems like that just gets so hard to do a Jesus versus Jesus in America, yeah. and maybe we need to get some new tools and new voices in the conversation and try some other things and instead of try to just do half of Jesus over here and some of Jesus on the right. You know, the purity of Jesus is on the right, and it just doesn't seem to get any better when we just kind of split Jesus in half and have him fight against himself politically. It just doesn't seem My to Jesus be the answer. Is right. Yours is right. Yeah. It just, it devolves into something really ugly for religion. So, yeah. all right, two left. So the next one is to free God. If we leave religion, whoever we are, then religion decreases its diversity and God will continue to be defined in, in smaller and smaller terms, locking him into a petty vision that becomes increasingly dystopian to those who've left. There are amazing ideas, wonders to behold, and an expansiveness that is going to be a loss to humanity if we abandon God altogether. We can't let God be whittled down to an idol for white supremacist patriarchy. I don't agree with this at all. So Okay. Outside of the church, again, what he's saying is that if you guys leave the church, the, and he doesn't say the church, he says God. So he's replacing one with the other. The reality is that spirituality, the creative energy of the universe, the omnipotence, uh, omnipresence, um, uh, what's the other one? But all of those exist without buildings called churches. And so as I look around and I listen again to Alan Watts, or I listen to a Joe Rogan podcast about whatever it is he's talking about that day, or I listen to Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris debate dogma in uh, Vancouver, Canada, I'm connected to that divine energy in all of that. So I don't think if we, if we all stop going to church, I get religion dies, but I don't think human, the human propensity to wrestle with the universe at large goes away. And so I'm not convinced that we free God better by staying in church. I actually think we free God by letting the churches die. 
Yeah, and I think this is the argument that, okay, once you leave church, then you're leaving religion and you're leaving all these tools and you're leaving all this mystery of the transcendent because sometimes, and it is fair though, that sometimes atheists will just talk about the evils of religion and they won't speak to just the mystery of consciousness. Like, you know, these spaces that just demand some awe and transcendence when we talk about it. And so it is a little bit of a false dichotomy because, and especially because when you look at the statistics of people leaving, um, the people who are leaving churches still believe in God. Gen Z, not on board with church, still majority believes in God. So, you know, atheist, I think it, I think the last numbers were 14%. And it, yes, that has doubled from 6% to 14%, but that is not a majority. And even many of those atheists have replaced God with something like energy or, you know, something, something else that is somewhat transcendent. So the idea that if we relieve, we leave religion, we lose the transcendent. Um, obviously you and I are doing this pod, doing this podcast at all and having people listen to it proves that that's wrong. How small is God that if we leave the churches, he gets locked up? Like it says to free him, right? So yeah, meaning uh -huh. the op is if we don't if we leave the churches, the opposite of that happens. God becomes captive. So mm -hmm. how how big is God if my leaving the church and you leaving the church puts him in captivity? And how how small is God if we all leave the churches, religion dies and he dies with it? Yeah. Like it's That's almost as if tiny. Brian, I mean, it shows that Brian McLaren really has no faith that God can exist outside of these institutions, right? Or that God in society, like that, that God and the transcendent and all the things that he loves about, about God or, you know, these mystical places that that will all be lost if we lose the religious houses that these stories have been housed in for thousands of years. Um, but I, I have more faith than him that that there's more God outside than inside. And, and this might be shining a light on Brian's blind spots, mm. meaning that maybe he has some development to do to recognize that God is bigger than these organized institutions. Or that there's more potential to um, still have these things that he loves about God outside of institutions right yeah. so it doesn't mean that i think he's stupid because he's not an atheist it's it's more this argument that the way things are now isn't the way things always have to be it's like augustine was asked something like you know should rome continue to exist and he said something like i don't see the world even functioning without rome because you know however societies function it just feels in the moment like it's always going to be this, like all these things are interconnected. This is the structure, but those structures can drastically change. We don't need Rome for the world anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, your feudalism in the middle ages, like we can, we can actually shift society. And I think people will still continue to have spiritual and mystical experiences and call that God outside of religion and in secular society. I think that that's still going to be true. And there's and always the, going to be mushrooms, LSD, and DMT. So. Right. And the statistics show that people aren't leaving God as fast as they're leaving religion. So, yeah. And yeah. Gen Z is still very much a believes in higher power, um, but they just say that they just don't experience it at church. And I know that the believer won't comprehend what my next statement, but 
the Wiccan and the tarot card reader and uh, uh, again, name all the, the woo stuff. Those are also approaches to that mystery in the universe. And I would argue that that is whether they would admit it or understand it even themselves. It's some sort of effort to reach out and connect to the divine. Yeah. It's some, you know, I'll have people on my TikTok say things like, you know, God, God is an energy and God, um, is the connective force between us all. And so there's all these other, yeah, concepts of God that um, people are trying to make sense of all of this. And God is still a word that people are using to describe that. Um, right. It doesn't mean, you know, the Christian God specifically, or it, right. it doesn't have to, too. Right. All right, last one. Because of Fermi's paradox and the great filter. Let me see what you think about this argument. So Fermi's paradox, I think we've talked about this before, is the idea that, uh, while the potential of extraterrestrial life is infinitely possible with many worlds and galaxies out there, if they exist, where are they? And the great filter is one explanation that in order for a civilization to advance to interstellar travel, no cataclysmic event can occur in that world that would filter them out of achieving it. And there are many possible such filters. So the idea of the Fermi, or Fermi's paradox is um, if there's life here, and even if there's like, like, let's say there's no God, but there's life on this planet, where is everybody else? If it's possible in an infinite universe, we should be seeing more life than what we do in the universe. And so the theory is that because um, in order to get to the place where you can do interstellar travel, you also have the power then and the technology to blow yourself up. And so the, the, the theory that's a part of this is that there's no life out there because there's like this civilization and then it blows up and then another place in the universe, it, you know, there's another kind of thing and it blows up. And so there's something that uh, something to be said to, if you get powerful enough to do inter interstellar travel, you also will probably wipe yourself out because you have to have a very aggressive form of evolution to get to that point. And, you know, to, and so if you are a society that's going to build something like Rome, well, once you get to interstellar travel, you will fight yourself and you will die because that's the kind of aggressive evolution, evolution that you need. So Christianity could be helping humanity to lift itself out of its self-inflicted harms because of its Christian views of love and nonviolence. It could bring people together to avoid these harms. It doesn't have to be an innocent bystander to the end of the world thoughts so christianity is the way to keep us from destroying blowing our planet ourselves blowing yeah. ourselves up and i've watched christianity for 2000 years and it seems to do a really good job of helping us destroy the planet and blow ourselves up yeah <laughs> so i think i actually think that a room full of atheists are much more prone to create peaceful resolutions to things on this planet than I ever would think any group of religionists would do. Yeah. Or like, just take the middle East, right? Um, would you rather, you know, have atheists decide kind of these kind of global decisions or would you rather have um, these middle Eastern religions that are fighting for one piece of ground and they're willing, they know that their God is real. They know that their God is coming or they know whatever they know about their heaven. And so they fight each other, you know, which, 
which one would you rather give a, a nuclear weapon to? I would rather give the nuclear weapon to the atheist who would be very careful to use it because this is all we've got here. Like, this yeah. is it. There's, you know, there's no belief in heaven on the other side where I'd be willing to push that button to, you know, blow up Muslims or blow up Jews or blow up Christians in these, in these wars. So it's, it's an interesting argument. He's trying to hold on to Christian views of, of nonviolence and that maybe those teachings can hold us back from, from the violence, but it just doesn't seem like Christian like going back to one of his earlier things that once you add religion to tribalism, violence is just always going to be right there because it's just hyped up tribalism and it's going to lead to violence. So I, I think we've got to get out of some of these big overarching stories that, that ramp that get so much money and so much power and so much tribalism and so much surety about the unknown that that's just a recipe for violence. Right. I don't know of any atheist or group of atheists, and I'm going to add a caveat, where they recognize from human to human, regardless of all the exclusionary things like color or gender, I don't know of any atheist who sees the human experience from person to person as being sort of equal, who commits any sort of atrocious violence uh, collective violence. Again, I'm, I understand a murder here or murder there. I'm talking about like widespread, let's get my army and fight your army. I, I just don't see that. And so I think what you're saying that I think that atheism or atheistic spirituality or an atheist mystic or whatever words you want to use, but somebody who goes like, look, I don't believe any of these myths are literal. I think you're much more prone to end up with peaceful, progressive resolutions to conflict and uh, problems of aggression. Yeah, I do think if I were to add something to, if I were to caveat that, it's like when you look at the dangers of fundamentalism and nihilism, I do think that fundamentalism means more violence to others because you're sure of your side and God is on your side and all of that. But I think nihilism is more self-destructive. Like, I think more people kill themselves, right? Because I just want out, like, if nothing matters, if you're in the atheist nihilism place where nothing matters, then there's a suicidal aspect to that. But you're not going to be so sure of anything that you're going to join an army that's blowing up other people. So it's like, it, I, I do think, yeah, individually, I think, I think nihilism hurts more. Um but I think collectively fundamentalism is more damaging because you can blow up people and feel like God is on your side, which you don't get with nihilism. Yeah. Um, the other, maybe the other side of that coin though, is that I think that the, a group of intelligent informed atheist would also create a world where people have much more contentment and enjoyment in their life. So that even the nihilist would wake up every day and go, man, today's going to be a great day. So today's not the day I'm going to take myself yeah, out. You hope so. I mean, our, our best our best symbol of that really is America, that they weren't atheists, and I don't claim that they were, but they were at least deists, right? They at least had doubts on Christianity and Of any particular claims. church. Yes. Uh -huh. So they at least were there. And so because they saw this aspect of religion, they said, okay, if this this country, if it's going to have a chance, we got it. Like, let's just keep religion out of it. There's no state religion. Try to, you know, build up that wall in between state and religion. And then they wrote things like, 
like you were saying, like, let's just live for the pursuit of happiness, right? That everybody has a right to that. So if anything, America is the greatest example of human rights that can occur that aren't specifically built on religion because they really tried not to, they tried specifically not to. So maybe even more, I mean, and that was, um, hundreds of years ago. So maybe we can do even more now than they could. Right. Nope. Totally. All right. So McLaren's conclusions An unexamined status quo Christianity is not worth perpetuating. I cannot and will not stay Christian. If it means perpetuating Christianity's past history and current trajectory, but he leaves it open on whether or not you do that from inside Christianity or outside Christianity, but his, his point is that unexamined Christianity is not worth perpetuating and Christian power is not worth continuing unless it can fix itself in, in these ways and offer something to humanity. So the unique and rare position, oh, this is, this is Brian McLaren again, the unique and rare position of a biblical prophet is always on the edge of the inside. So he talks about that and um, you know, his thing, his choice is to stay on the edge of the inside, whereas I think we're on the edge of the outside. But we, I at least appreciate that we both could say this was a good argument or this is something that would help me to stay. Or if I was in a different time period or had different experiences, I could see this. And so for you listening, if you're a fence sitter where you're trying to decide where to, where to go, you know, I hope this conversation helped you. And in the end, I, I really don't judge people who stay because if I were to judge people who decided to stay, I feel like I'd be judging myself too, right? Like previous versions of myself. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. Um, you know, I'm curious what you think. Besides what it says here, like there's things he didn't hit on. I think a reason to stay is community. It's mm. the place where you feel at home. It's the place where you feel like these are your friends and your family. I think that's a reason to stay. I think reasons to leave. You're experiencing trauma of any sort. Mm-hmm. You should have complete right to just say, that's enough. I don't want to do this anymore. If you're feeling deceived by your religion, if, if you don't find your religion useful. Um, it, any thoughts from you on like what you see is like, what are the most, uh, he gave this list of 10 and 10. I feel like if you and I sat down for an hour and made mm-hmm. up our 10 reasons to stay and go, they'd be a completely different list. Yeah, some of it is some of it is I think specific to Christianity in the sense that um, so Christian community, you know, there are there are Christian churches in my area, but they're all different. Whereas Mormonism, um, the community is going to be stronger because there's really one brand, and you're in or you're out. So when you're in, that's a very strong that's a very strong community bond. Whereas if I went from this Christian church to this Christian church, you know, you can do that. So maybe community isn't as much of a reason to stay in that particular church because if you, um, you because you can find a left wing Christian church or you can go to a UU type kind of Christian church. So maybe that's just different for us where for Mormonism, like community is just one of the main reasons why people want to stay or mixed faith marriages or what do I do for my kids? So yeah, I, I almost think this is more of a bird's eye view of Christianity reasons to stay and leave historically and maybe not like your actual experience right now, which is how am I going to raise my kids to have, to be a good person and 
if, if we don't, if I don't have this communal support, I mean, that's the majority of people that I talk to who are on the fence. They feel like they could leave personally, but what do I do with my kids? Or like, what do I do with my extended family? So maybe it's just a difference in, in approach, but yeah, I think our list would be very different just by talking to people who are actually leaving. Yeah. And I think also, I just want to say before we close out, any reason you have for leaving or staying is valid. It's yeah. your reasons for leaving or staying. And I wouldn't want to tell anybody uh, what is a invalid or valid reason to stay. Um, I'll just note one example. We had a recent issue in our faith that we came from where there was a deep financial fraud and they got some trouble. And I was on Facebook giving a really hard time to the apologist or the defenders of our faith who are just on the inside edge of that, right? But I've tried to be really clear that the only thing I'm attacking is their voice in helping people to make sense of the messiness and to stay thinking the church is still true. Because if they're unwilling to call out a spade when it's a spade, then you no longer can trust those voices to be honest with you. And so they may still serve a lot of good and be great people. I was trying to speak about a sp particular facet of them. Um, and I just would note that when people are staying or leaving, whatever reason they have to stay or to leave, um, I would honor that as valid. Yeah. And that that's really my guiding principle when I'm working with people who are trying to decide whether to stay or leave is that it, it doesn't matter as long as you can be honest. Like honesty has to be the driving principle. And this is kind of, I think, what you were getting at where some apologists will talk one way with other apologists, but they'll talk another way in public, right? And and that dishonesty is perpetuating more dishonesty, right? And so if you, there were times where you and I were active in church, but we tried to be honest. We tried to not say things that we didn't believe. We tried to, if there was something especially egregious, we would raise our hand and say, I, I don't think that that's helpful or healthy. And so if you can do that, if you can have some level of honesty showing up in these spaces and you choose to stay for any reason, for, for community, because um, for kids, for whatever, whatever you're getting out of, you know, a, a religious community, as long as you can do it with honesty, I think it's okay that you go so long as you don't have to lie to do it. Right. And then the same thing when you, when you leave um, is to do it with honesty that, Hey, there's some things that I loved, but I'm choosing to go this way because it's honesty requires me to kind of do it. Like for me, that was when I lost God, it was like, Ooh, I can't even really participate at all anymore because I can't nuance this enough to say this thing out loud in this community. So it's time for me to go. But when I still believed in God, I could go to church and be self-honest. And so it was for the time, maybe the right thing for me or my family or wherever I was. And I don't judge myself too harshly, but if you have to be dishonest, I think that's where you can say, do you really have to stay? Because like you said, you're, you were holding on to things in your body because, and that'll start to increase the more you have to kind of skirt things or be dishonest to stay in those communities. Yeah, totally. 100% agree. All right. That's it for me. And we'll, we'll see you guys next week. Okay. Take it easy, everybody. That was a fun episode, Britt. Thanks so much for doing that. Folks, please help us keep the show going. Go to almostawaken.org. Click the donate button. 
send us a few bucks. Also, if you subscribe to our YouTube channel and uh, also don't, don't hesitate to put comments out there to share uh, our work if, if something uh, was deeply interesting or entertaining to you. So Britt, thanks for all you do. All right. Thanks everybody. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nononsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director Brittany Hartman.